0: Welcome back. Um, is- <laughs> Sorry. You can't do that. You can't. You can't.
1: I know. I don't know. know. Okay. Ready. Okay.
0: What was that about?
1: You were just really funny in your face when you were like, mm, mm. welcome back. I just- <laughs> Mute.
0: This is what I look like. What the fuck are you talking about? You were really funny. I wasn't making a face. This is how I look.
1: No, you were doing this head thing. I'm ready.
0: Mute yourself.
2: You said not to.
0: I'm telling you to now because I don't trust you not to start laughing again.
2: Y'all, Yo, would you mind if I take a quick pee break? I just realized <laughs> I feel like I need to take a quick pee break. Is that okay? I know you're just smart to introduce trendy. <laughs> That's why you look ready <laughs> to quit. <laughs> I really need to pee.
1: Of course you
0: can't. Okay, I'll be there. You are fired. <laughs>
2: You didn't hire me in the first place.
0: <laughs> I don't see why we are arguing about technicalities. Who hired whom? Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Delma Jackson.
1: And I'm Shandine Garcia, and today we're joined by Ayan, and this episode is our final guest speaker of the season, and you will not want to miss it.
0: Hey, Shandine. What's so? How you doing? Good to see you. Good to be in the space with you. How you holding up? What's on your mind?
1: Why are you grinning like a Cheshire cat?
0: Because I'm just so excited to be here with you. Why are you hating on my excitement? Just join <laughs> me in it. Be in this with me. You know what I'm saying? Let the light no. shine through, you know?
1: No, you're smiling like a Cheshire cat, like you've got some gotcha you're about to throw down right I, now, don't <laughs> I don't know what you're talking
0: about. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Um, I'm good. I'm good, good. Am I real good or am I halfway? Where am I? I am, and I know I talk about this all the time, so... I'm sorry if it annoys our listeners. Actually, I'm sorry, not sorry. Let me be clear. I miss my boys. I miss my sons. And it's getting um, almost painful. I don't know how fucking people do this. I don't know how they raise children and then send them off into the world and not just feel that constant ache. And so I know they're going to be home in May, both of them. And even though they're going to be home in May, I'm going out to visit Zay, Zay next week in Atlanta. And I'm going out to visit Gabrielle in two weeks or three weeks in London. Like, are they just going to then turn around and come home? Yes. And could I have just waited? No, I could not have
0: no. just waited. All right. No. I'm, I'm glad that you all have the kind of relationship where that's desirable on both sides and y'all are able to make that happen. That's what's up. I'm going to make fun of you about it. But in this moment, I'm going to just, I'm going to say that's what's up. Everybody doesn't have that.
1: Well, you know, it's grounded in some fucked up shit that I'm sure will give my therapist a just happiest day in the world as soon as I find a decent therapist. Um, so any Portland listeners, any Portland therapist recommendations, I would love it. I'm on five waiting lists. Can I just say that? Um, I never had a mom growing up. And mm-hmm. when I was in school, I got a scholarship to go to this elite fucked up boarding school. And I got a scholarship to go to this elite fucked up um, Ivy league institution. And I would see these amazing um, parental exchanges happen. And I don't know if they're amazing or if I just painted like my own um, rose colored glasses image on it. But, you know, a mom would come and take my roommate out to lunch and sometimes I'd be invited and one, mm-hmm. I'd be overwhelmed with how much the food cost that they were paying for. Mm-hmm. Two, they would always then take the, you know, my roommate or like a, a sweet mate, like shopping for clothes and out to like a show and all of this stuff, or that would also see care packages come in. Mm -hmm. I talked to my father once a month and we had only so many minutes because of our MCI calling card by the phone, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I was so hungry for that thing that I would see happen with these moms that would visit and like hell or high water, whether it's wrong or right, I mapped onto that and was like, I will be, th- I will do that for my children. So, like, I got to drop them off at college and get sheets for their bed when they moved into their dorm rooms, and and I would have been able to go visit them regularly had it not been the pandemic. Because I was planning to go out to see Gabe first year of Boston, but then COVID shut down, and I've already been out to visit Zayzay once once the um, the all the travel ban stuff lifted and, and vaccines became accessible i send them care packages all the time i do like i feel like i'm living the dream that mm-hmm. i always wanted as a mom and I, I i just like i know they're gonna move off somewhere in life and settle and have their family somewhere and it probably won't be near me but like does it always feel this hard mm-hmm. and did my dad not feel it just because we were broke and he just never had it like i don't know he didn't emote like, pat me on the head, get good grades, Mahitha. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like part of the, I don't want the anguish of missing them. But I do feel like I'm living a dream because it was something I never had. And I knew this is what I wanted to to provide if I ever had children.
0: Sure. Yeah. I am glad for you because we don't always get to see our dreams come to fruition. Right? Mm. It's one thing to want that. It's another thing to be in a position to be able to make it happen. And so I'm really excited for you and for them. Um, my kids are not to the age yet where I've had to send them off into adulthood. <clears throat> um, not really, you know. My oldest yeah. is, is still around. Um, and then What I had to deal with more was like with the separation of uh, when my daughter's mom and I split and then mom moved to New Jersey, having to put my daughter on a plane by herself when she was really young, you know, unaccompanied minor status. And just for those first uh, few years, especially... Oh man, I was the saddest thing you ever wanted to look at. Both of us just mm-hmm. crying in the mm-hmm. airport, you know, um, and then we got used to it. We, we both aged. It was like, all right, I'll see you, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, when she was young, young, she used to stay with her mom for the school year and then would come to me for the summer. And, um, that's been reversed now for several years. So she's with me during the school year now. And, um, so yeah, now it's like, you know she's she's 15, and you know, just kind of, yeah, getting to that stage where she's, you could tell she's reaching out and looking out toward the rest of the world. But to be honest, um all of my kids are still very much sweet, even my 20 year old, you know, um, quick with the hugs and, and all of that. And so I'm really thankful. Um, especially with, you know, my sons, you know, I'm glad we never let toxic masculinity throw us way off to where we couldn't be affectionate with each other and say, I love you without it feeling weird and shit. And I had that with my dad, Mm -hmm. you know, my dad and I were really affectionate. And so, um, I think in a lot of ways, my dad allowed me to see what that could look like and, and then step into that for myself you know um but yeah i'm think, i'm really happy for you and yours for sure i think
1: that is so beautiful i just i think about that all the time well two things one i'm still conflicted in the fact that like i've shipped them off not shipped them or they've chosen or they've been shaped to be like shipped off to these elite universities like you know i don't like they're running towards whiteness shit and it's not like they're running towards whiteness but they are in white institutions mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. and and all that that entails for their bodies and their own ethnic identity development, which is really difficult for them being indigenous Chicano boys out in these universities where they're all by themselves. And so that, um, and so I, I'm not saying that unequivocally, like I support the choice, like, like seeing my dream come to fruition, but there is, but the dream of like being a mom that's there for him, them that I never had Mm -hmm. is definitely that in terms of the hugging, I think about, um, this isn't the first time you've talked about your children being sweet or also being huggers or being affectionate. Mm-hmm. I wonder about generational trauma in this mm-hmm. regard. I wasn't hugged essentially from, I would say like age like five to um, like 18, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad wasn't a hugger. He wasn't very affectionate. He loved us. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I knew he's the closest person on the planet to me. And when I had kids, I swore I was going to like hug, cuddle, hold, do all of those things. And I did. And they still aren't super affectionate. They don't, they're not really big huggers. Mm -hmm. Like they know Mm -hmm. how to um, emote and feel and hold like with their male friends. So they're not afraid of what like male to male hugging is and, Mm -hmm. um, not afraid to like, and, and granted it's a different generation than you and I, but like locking arms or like sitting in each other's laps or fucking around on a couch, like with three of their, their besties who are men, they don't, that's not like, that doesn't bother them, but among our internal family. And I know there's some, but someone, someone was telling me that there's some bizarre shift that happens with boys hugging their moms in some way. Like, I don't know the gender dynamics, but like, I felt it shift, and I don't know what it was or what it was about, like, like really, really huggy and close, but then it was a different shift when they hit, uh, like, middle school, high school-y. Mm-hmm. Now, Gabe has almost come back full into the, like, back in the on the huggy, but his younger one hasn't quite yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just wonder whatever damage was done to me, which has got to be damaging to have never been hugged for decades or like (laughs) longer. Like that can't be good. Uh, Another shout out. Anybody know any therapists calling all therapists? (laughs) And maybe it's like, I I could get like a whole crew of Portlanders to like be on a, uh, a campaign for me to find a therapist. Um, I just, I feel I'm filled with so much hope. Thinking about children exiting your home who are affectionate and sweet, and wherever they go in their journey, and maybe they never exit your home and they live with you forever, but I think I'm it's a beautiful that. thing. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful thing.
0: Don't you ever that I say? I just that. curse you. No, I haven't that. They be there for like. forever, forever. <laughs> they could be here. I'm moving. Shit, somebody gonna get out of here. Um,
1: um, what's good with you? What's what's what are you facing this week?
0: Yeah, I was. Um, I mentioned to you in passing that I've been watching the um, confirmation hearings mm-hmm. for Kintaji Jackson and, mm-hmm. oh Jesus, watching people like Holly, Cruz, you know, some of these bigger named senators uh, really try to make their, try to... Use the confirmation hearings as as a way to like further their own political careers on the back of this black woman. It's hard to watch, you know. Um, it's infuriating, and mm-hmm. she's coming with the you know stereotypical professional r- responses. And there's a part of me just wants her to like <laughs> jump over the table and, and just
1: say it, just smack give the it.
0: shit out of somebody. Um but yeah you don't you don't get to this place in your career being reactionary like that. you don't get to this place in your career without towing a line around um American exceptionalism that I find really difficult to hear um articulated from black and brown folks, too, so there's that dynamic, you know.
1: We talked about this a little bit before. I'm curious. I had a a follow-up question that just came up right now in my head around that. Like, we know that there's this level of patriotism that's required for them to be where they are or else they wouldn't get there, right? Because, I mean, that's what the system conditions you to do is be this patriot in some way. I really want to know to what degree – we know it's performative of some nature – but to what degree does that amount of performance of patriotism um, actually like fully seep into you and then you are the talking head for the nation. I forget I'd read I'd read that quote um, to you the other day when you were talking about this where it was like proud to be of this great nation of this. Um, my, oh. Like, how do they not gag while saying that? Yes, what percentage of, you know, President Obama, what percentage of uh, Sotomayor, percentage of, like, of folks who you know have got some social justice shit in them are, like, secretly gagging when they say shit like that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's, that's a good question. I remember Michelle Obama getting in trouble when she said, I can't remember what it was in reaction to, but she said for the first time, I was proud of this country. Mm. And oh my God. The fallout was real. She slipped. She slipped. You know, the
2: the fallout came was real came out.
0: Um no, I think so I spent most of my graduate studies um focused on American culture. And I came to understand myself as, and I still think I am to some degree an Americanist meaning there's something specific about the combination of studying the country that you are raised in that gives me a certain kind of fascination about it. There's something very mercurial about this country. Um,
1: and, and the nations therein.
0: And the nations therein. And this place represents uh like so much tra- like tragedy often does it brings out the best and the worst and folks you know you hear that all the time in relationship to war right um the way people respond to trials and tribulations um yeah this is um, a very, if I had to, <laughs> I've, I've read that a lot of countries have a um, a Zodiac sign attached to it and America's is Gemini. And I'm just like, yeah, huh. of course it is.
1: <laughs> Tell me what that means. I am not, a, I'm like, I, I know nothing about, except when people are like, oh, you're totally Scorpio. I have like an idea of what they mean by that, but I don't know what mm. Gemini means. I just don't know like aspects of mine from people.
0: Well, if you're familiar with the term Mercurio, yes. Um, the planet Mercury rules uh, Gemini and Virgo.
1: Oh, okay. Um, but That's yeah. So,
0: yeah. Um, America set really high standards on paper, and. Why like the ink's not even dry on the Bill of Rights and we know people are getting fucked up as you're writing this shit, right? The constitution as you're writing it. People everywhere are just getting (laughs) totally fucked up. But you have these really lofty ideas that you're putting down on paper that don't apply to others, whatever that means, right? And I feel like Yeah,
1: like they're they're like they're lofty ideas of their own white supremacist club and culture,
0: right? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so then here comes all these other folks who don't fit in the club who demand access. And the whole history is a like tug of war between these folks like saying, hey, this is what you put on paper. Live up to it. Lean into it. Expand your tent, so to speak. Right. Um,
1: and or groups of people saying. Uh, that's actually not my way of, right exactly <laughs> i'm out the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Deuces>. <laughs> our, right. our, our listeners can see that but he just just as i was speaking dumb me through but like peace outside like I'm yeah
0: out. yeah I'm out. I'm, out. I'm out like
1: not not let me in but go fuck yourself this is mm-hmm. not the thing that i want mm-hmm. to be part of right
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then you try to leave but then here comes america Hegemony, following everybody everywhere, and <laughs> right? This is where you're going to go. Um, yeah, so it's um, when somebody is willing to lean into the loftiest aspects of Americana. Meaning the law. The law? No, nah, not just the law. The ideas that inform supposedly Mm. Mm inform the law. Like if you want, if you, if you're capable of being a little naive and you're willing Mm -hmm. to be a little naive, Mm -hmm. and or if the American dream, quote unquote, worked well for you and yours, either one of those can infuse you with a level of patriotism that might be sincere. Right. Um, Like my granddad, World War II, can't access the GI Bill because he black, but still want to like wave the flag. Like I'm, I'm a vet. I'm a proud vet. I'm a soldier. You know, a, like he really drank the Kool-Aid. And I think for him, it was sincere. And when he had a critique, it was about other black folks. It was not about white America. Mm-hmm. And he was dead serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and he passed away before I was old enough to have an analysis. Or so we'd be fighting right now. You know? So I think for some people, it's, it is sincere to get yeah. to, that, to your question.
1: That's scary. Your dad bit.
0: was a vet, yeah?
1: My dad, my grandparents were. No, he was in the Army, oh, yeah. but he wasn't. He didn't. Yeah.
0: Your he dad was in the Army. Yeah. Y'all ever talk about this? Any t- any idea where where he landed on some of this stuff?
1: Oh yeah, there's no question what they would do out in his part in his neck of the woods in northern New Mexico is the person who was drafting and like submitting the names to the draft board, she would look for every Hispanic surname and draft and them yep, you're going, you're going. And they found this out in his county because they couldn't figure out why my uncle Eli was being drafted again and again when he had a heart murmur and something else that prevented him from actually going to being a a soldier. And they're like, why do you keep bringing back my name? So they investigated and they found out what was happening. So no, there's, there's stuff around the military for my father that He's deeply angry about there's also he also ate threes he gained weight mm-hmm. grew an inch like he like had three square meals a day and was exercising regularly as opposed to working like a dog on the farm mm-hmm. and so it, it had a lot of conflicting stuff but for um, family on my mom's side, they're super proud of my step-grandfather, stepgrandfather who is a world War you know uh, Navajo code talker. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, you Google his name, you'll find him. He's got medals. He's been in parades and he's patriot like to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, when they were drafting or have, or Native Americans were signing up in droves, they would then come back from, from these wars and not legally be considered citizens, be allowed to vote, be allowed to do anything, not even vote, be considered human beings. Yep. But they were like to be fed to the, you know, led to the slaughter. No question. And there was something around it, and I would guess, I don't know, um, I don't have a deeper understanding of Black male culture at that time, but for a lot of Native American men, the chance to be a warrior in the ways that they knew were taken. So, this was a chance to do some of that. Mm-hmm. And and to be fed, and also to escape just the abject poverty, alcoholism, and and sexual abuse, and domestic like all the violence. This was a this was more like a patriotic violence. Mm-hmm. This was a like mm-hmm. ha, like a, an endorsed. You were like imbued with a sense of something, and then oh yeah, came back wearing proud to be. I mean, there are huge powwows about like veterinarian, like veterinarians, veterans. <laughs> Could have been veterinarians. (laughs) Veterans and what they are and how proud they are. And I just swear to God, it's hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. But who am Mm -hmm. I? That's not my experience. I don't know what it's like to be an Indigenous man in that time coming out and needing and wanting something to fill something. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's that simple. I don't think manhood is that simple. But I think there's something in there that I don't know about and I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. But I do... I would like to not pass judgment, but I fucking do.
0: hmm Yeah. And I think that complexity you're speaking to is exactly how I would describe my understanding of the country as a whole. Mm. If you look at any given time period, you'll see that sort of complexity. You know, um, I don't know about World War Two, but I know World War I, so many brothers went to prove their value and their worth. Mm-hmm. Only to come home and be hanged in uniform, mm-hmm. lynched in uniform, burned mm-hmm. and barbecued in uniform. This is the red summer. This is Tulsa. This is the time when y'all are carpet bombing black communities. And some of the folks in those very communities just got home. Yep. You know, and so... For me, um, I think about when we had Adrian, Lieutenant Colonel Massion, and he talked about there's a period where he was drinking a Kool Aid, and then he comes home and is reminded dramatically mm-hmm. can't even get at the airport before you're reminded of where you are, in
2: mm-hmm.
0: your place in this in this world. So, yeah, it is um, it's it's complicated and. I can. I think one of the things about being on the left, so called, or being a so called progressive, um, and one of the things that has come with aging for me is being able and willing to hold that complexity and see my, and this is something you said earlier, right? Seeing my critique as. Um, Critiquing the patriotism. Of patriotism. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is patriotism. It's holding uh the U.S. accountable to what it says it's about. um but I don't think it's any less the to throw the peace on, the peace sign. You know? Um, to be honest, the know, of the state the state the state as a state doesn't really work for me anymore anyway if I'm being honest with you for Fuck real. your borders. of the state of the so, yeah. Well, and
1: then, and how those borders are replicated on our bodies around one drop or blood quantum, mm-hmm. or what makes uh mm-hmm. and what's homeland, and what's mm-hmm. the division of homeland, and where mm-hmm. are you rooted to, and all of the bullshit, you know. Sexuality. From, veteran, from veterans to veterinarians. Yep.
0: <laughs> Sexuality and gender, same shit, yep. right? These yep. really hard, yep. Right? Distinctions yep. that we love to make um, on. On the and landscape of this planet, and on our own bodies, yep, and our psychology. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot to to comb through. Um,
1: so, really, you had kind of a light week, not to the two major thinking uh, about nah, these things, and nah, the, never, <laughs> right,
0: never too major. Um, I, but to, not be thinking, saying, to
1: be thinking about that though, that what what is going through your body and your brain and your heart while you're watching those, um, while you're watching the the these here these CNN coverage.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: we don't talk about that very much and where that is on all parts of your body.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And we're reflecting about it now, but it's happening in real time as you're watching and your head spinning, your heart's churning and whatever's happening,
0: mm-hmm. that's just
1: happening to everybody all across the, and whoever's watching it right now. And that's scary mm-hmm. to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Last thing. Yes. Speaking of gender dynamics, binaries and gender understanding and all of that, I will say um, it went to the gym yesterday and really realized and it really sank in for the first time that because I don't want to be the creepy dude staring at the spandex pants on the ladies working out. I, I stare at my feet the whole time I'm in the gym, and because I'm a black male who's a grown up <laughs> in a predominantly white gym space, staring at my feet the whole time I'm in there don't feel good because <laughs> then it, feels it does like not so nice. does not <laughs> it feels yes, like Maso, a most, Let me step aside yes, on the sidewalk. Yes yes, boss, yes, sir.
1: yes, yes, sir.
0: What the fuck? Yeah, you're fucked. What the fuck? I they're don't want because you
1: can't be the creepy dude. I don't want to be the creepy right? dude. Where are you going to put your eyes? And I don't then, know where to put
0: my eyes.
1: And then people, if you're like I'm trying, like I like if you're trying really hard to look at like the like right here, like the bridge of the nose, right? You're and then you're concentrating so hard, you got these white guys watching you trying really hard just to look at one location. then automatically they're mapping onto every single fucking stereotype at about every black male. So you can't do that. Mm-mm. So all you can do is Mm-mm. look at your feet and hope they didn't move the weights, so you're not going to fucking hit it with your head because you're looking down.
0: <clears throat> Maybe the answer is I stare at the ceiling.
1: <laughs> I'm fairly confident just, this is not the answer. I just walk around <laughs>
0: staring at the ceiling the whole time. What could go wrong?
1: But then, and then you've got your like your family, your people before you died, so you could be here today. So you're fucking like doing the menstrual dance throughout a, a gym. That can't be right.
0: I get up and the culture in this gym, you wipe down your your seat when you're done. They got the little spray bottle and the little paper towel so you can clean off his, his station your before you move on. Right. Yes. I get up from my bench. I go grab my paper towel. I'm spray, spray. I turn around and it's like some sixteen-year-old white boy standing at the bench, getting ready to sit down, and you know, COVID and germs. I'm like, hey, let me wipe clean this it down first. first. Right. Well, I'm not staring
1: it. at him, but your eyes at his shoes.
0: So now I'm wiping a bench while I got this sixteen-year-old white boy, arms crossed, just standing over me, waiting on me to clean his seat fan. You know, oh my gosh, Shondene.
1: And he's probably like, you don't know, probably the nicest human could be freaking like youngest recruit to the KKK. And here you are. Let me clean this for you. Let me blah, blah, blah. Let me not look up. Let me not move too fast. Let me try to resize my body the way I've actually seen you resize your body in public spaces. So it's not to be intimidating. And all mm-hmm. you want to do is work out. All you want to do is That's go to the goddamn gym.
0: So I can be bigger and more intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) When we come back, we are so excited to introduce our guest Ayan to the stage, to the mic, to the pod. Please, please, please stay tuned. We will be right back. Thank you for giving Dive In Justice a listen.
1: We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have.
0: If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you can do to show your support.
1: First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together.
0: The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back, everyone. I wanted to take a moment to introduce our guest who is as of now, as of recently, um, my colleague, a brand new colleague of mine, because I'm I'm new in in a position, and so I'm I'm joining, and they are already there, and I've had the opportunity to speak with them once in a one-on-one context, and was just so. Once felt too short, an hour felt too short. Definitely wanted more time, and so they were willing to to agree to give me that. Um, because I was hella impressed and, and want to learn more. And so, I'm really excited to bring our guest to you all today. Ayan is joining us. Ayan is a transformational coach and founder of Unearth Freedom LLC and a consultant at Metropolitan Group. As a healing justice facilitator and cultural change guy, Ayan helps systematically disadvantaged and purpose-driven leaders experience freedom, feel powerful, and act with purpose. Ayan is a Vivian Barnett Fellow, a Coaching for Everyone Fellow, and is also a member of the International Coaching Federation of Professional Coaches. As of March 2022, they have logged 97 hours of coaching with the Institute of Professional Excellence in Coaching. Ian has worked with Black, queer, brown, and disabled leaders, communities, and youth in international American and Indian settings for nearly a decade. As a consultant with Metropolitan Group, Ian implemented projects and provided strategic counsel to increase trust, and equity within top agencies, foundations, universities, businesses, and nonprofits. Ayan is a transmasculine, queer, Punjabi, and Himchali person who lives in Portland, Oregon, on yet-to-be-returned territory of the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians. The best way to connect with Ayan is to follow them at LinkedIn.com, slash IN slash Ayaan. Ayan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Deep appreciation. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
2: Thank you, Doma. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and with Shandin. I've really been looking forward to this conversation.
1: I'm going to come out of the gate, not swinging, but, um, it's a question that I've been asking myself since I first met you and it's going to sound completely ageist. So my I'm swinging with this fucked up socially constructed ageist, uh, framing. Um, so I'm offering apologies ahead of it. You're a coach, you're a consultant, you're a writer, you are one of the most gifted facilitators, I've witnessed. And I say this from a, I come with a deep bench of gifted facilitators. And I would say Delma's one of them. And I'm on record. Go ahead, Delma be like, yeah, yeah. She acknowledged me. Here's my ageist question. How can you have this much depth and knowledge and skill? Fresh out of college. Youngest I've ever seen, and I'm not. I think, you know, when I think about working with youth and how youth can rule the world, can do amazing things. Yeah, yeah. Like, man. Mm. Until you actually see mm. it in action, you don't really get it. My question mm-hmm. to you is: How has your journey to the work gotten you
2: at your age to where you are today? Mm-hmm. My life's work has been about healing. And it was about healing since before I knew that that was the case. As part of that healing work, I don't believe that I am just myself. And for one, where does that come from? It comes from... Over time, really deeply practicing listening and that includes listening to my ancestors, listening to people and really (laughs) in some ways coding for themes because I really value connection. And I also understood your question to be a compliment, so thank you. I'm deeply honored to have you reflect all of those back to me. And that's a big part of how I see the work that I do is that I'm stepping into a room with the intention to be okay with having a lot more to learn. And that puts me in a, it gives me this intimacy with people that I think a lot of people might miss that if their armor is up and their intention is to prove that they're valuable. And that's not to blame the people who are conditioned into that or are engaging in the need to prove that they're valuable because I do believe that that is one of the most human patterns is to want to prove that I'm enough. I belong. Do you see me? Like, Do you value me? And a big part of my healing journey on a lot of different levels has been about removing enough layers of all the shit that piled up. You talked about intergenerational trauma. You talked about not only the stories that we're fed based on how people perceive us and our identities, but also the stories that our parents were fed and that their parents were fed and that their parents were fed. And a lot of which they internalized and attached a sense of belonging to, right? So a lot of healing for me has been about removing enough of those layers by becoming aware of them and getting really clear on my practice, if you will. And that was a big reason why I I am this way fresh out of college because a lot of college was also... Like, I started facilitating when I was 16. And so when I came into college, I had already been facilitating for a couple of years. But I was in a private white institution. And a lot of that journey was about noticing that I had attached my worth to all of these things outside of me, all of these things that were external to me, including how my professors perceived me, what my grades were. And make no mistake, like those perceptions had material consequences attached to them, like a scholarship, right? And the ability to go on to grad school, etc. But when I detached, just like, what was going on in terms of the shit that was coming at me within that institutional structure and everything it it entailed to want to thrive as a trans and brown person in that setting, I realized that healing looks like and liberation looks like removing that, equal to sign in the equation that says, you know, this external factor equals your value. This external factor equals your value. And I believe it's given me a sense of deep grounding into just how generously incomplete and yet just how valuable I am in my relationships.
0: I appreciate that response. And I think I have a kind of a follow-up question. There was a particular aha moment when I was in undergrad that I would say fundamentally shifted me, right? Right? You mentioned being a facilitator at 16, and I'm curious whether it was pre-college or during or whenever. The realization that you had attached your self-worth to these external pieces was, for me, a big part of that aha moment, right? Right? And that was the beginning of me saying, okay, now I can start the work of, you know, recognizing is that that first step, right? Is there a pivotal moment for you in which that happens or does it feel more like a slow reveal for you? Mm,
2: I love that question, Delma. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. There are quite a few pivotal moments. One of them has to do with me becoming aware of how feelings are a central part of all of our healing journeys. And that's why I do the work that I do now as a coach. It's also some of the work I'm striving and strategizing to bring into more traditional, more old school, more established institutional settings where we do work with, you know, federal agencies or just big nonprofits that have hundreds of years of history behind them and are recently awakening to the necessity of justice and belonging being a reality for everyone who steps into those institutions right the reason i'm bringing feelings into the conversation has to do with this story so let me tell you this story i was facilitating a group of about 40 people from about 35 different countries all aged 16 to 19 maybe a couple of 15-year-olds thrown in there. And we were talking about some heavy stuff. I don't remember, but I did go to a high school. I don't remember what the topic was, but I did go to a high school with very opinionated and strong-willed people who were brought, selected from all over the world to study together and to inform each other's ways of seeing the world around this mission of peace and sustainability. And so we used to have a lot of meetings like that, that were just part of our educational experience. Mm -hmm. And in one of these meetings, I remember that we were discussing something a lot of people had opinions about, and I was the lead facilitator. And so in those times, we didn't have Zoom hands, right? So I had a list going of the speaking order based on which I saw people raise their hands. And there was this really big Eastern European guy. Um, He was known to just be caustic or a little rude, if you will. That was just kind of his style. But he interrupted a person who was speaking, looked right at me in front of 40 people, and said, you're doing a fucking terrible job. his voice as he said that Mm. and I could feel my skin burning but I remember that I handled that with as much poise as I could while continuing to keep the meeting running and other people sort of backed me up but not in a not in a way that um, that felt like anyone really validated my experience in that moment. Like, whoa, you just had this person throw a tantrum Mm -hmm. in your face because he wasn't getting to speak, even though there were people who had raised their hands before him, right? He was like, you're doing a terrible job. You're not letting me speak. And I was like, hmm. And it brought up I think it brought up both fear and shame in me. And now when I look back and now when I work with fear and shame as a coach, and also when we talk about justice and injustice, there's a lot of fear and shame that's at the foundation of our experiences. But we never get to the foundation. We just stay at the level of this is what I'm thinking or even this is what I experienced And when a colleague tells you that, hey, I experienced this and it's in a meeting, I've noticed that most people don't know how to have an emotionally conscious response to that. Mm. And it's, you know, the most common things people will do is either make it about themselves as a way to try to relate. Like, oh, I had that experience too, but you just, this person just shared something with you and you just immediately pivoted the conversation back to yourself instead of just saying, whoa, I see you. What does that feel like? Or this word you said, what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. Right. Most of us don't do any of that because we're scared. We're like, whoa, Mm -hmm. this person just said something really heartbreaking or really hurtful or they're in pain. And so the second most common thing people want to do is make it better. Right. Like, Don't feel that thing. Like, how can we make this better? Don't feel the fear. Don't feel the shame. And that story was really pivotal because I realized that that was the first first moments that I validated myself in the moment. I could have said, oh, wow, I am doing a terrible job. Or I could have said, wow, I am a terrible facilitator. And instead I said, it's okay, this person's having a reaction and I'm doing my very best and both of those can be true. Yeah, that was a pivotal moment. It really brought me into questions that now help me move us into a more whole way of relating to each other that isn't just based on the thoughts we think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm wondering if you could tell us, and I think um, it's related to the things that you started earlier. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, unearth freedom. And it just makes me think if you were on this trajectory as early as 16, And and what you were doing and what you were holding and what you were keeping clear in terms of a North Star or your clarity of compass through your undergraduate, through to like, what was the through line to have you create your own LLC? And what are you hoping to do with that in the world?
2: So at Unearthed Freedom... I teach a proprietary framework, and that framework is designed to increase emotional consciousness. And so what I'm hoping to do with this is really to make it both strongly grounded in theory and the current research that we have around shame, around fear, around vulnerability, around racial injustice and what the embodied experience of feeling less than systemically and generationally has left us with today in terms of patterns and what, what we feel is missing, right? So really grounded in all of the research that is available and also really value our lived experiences because a a lot of our lived experiences don't have the same kind of numbers to back them up and there's still a lot of value in them and so the, the grounded in evidence grounded in evidence honors lived experiences and offers practical tools like honors the experiential learner in all of us to say, how can you actually bring emotional consciousness and emotionally conscious leadership into your everyday? So it's not just another concept. It's over time a practice that you can also start living into. And some parts of that you may already be living into, but might have some conflict or just a lack of clarity around how to truly implement... Emotional consciousness. The reason that I believe this is going to be critical is because, frankly, as someone who's a Gen Z, -er, I'm very... People... Okay, this is another misconception that people have about people who are really attuned to their feelings, is that we're not, quote-unquote, logical enough. Right? And I'm actually very pragmatic that shit is going to continue hitting the fan as we move into more extreme weather events, as we move into more extreme climate change, the fear and the cycles of fear and shame and even helplessness are going to continue. And while I believe that there's a lot of value in therapy at certain points for certain people, even though it's not accessible to all of us, <laughs> as you mentioned, Shandine, it's a very real, there's very real barriers to that modality. What I'm offering with Unearthed Freedom is a set of modalities that shows you how to take your power back because I wish I had had that. I wish someone had told me as a young person, Hey, you may, you may, exp- you may go on to experience these systemic barriers, but you're so powerful. Like you are so powerful. So what does it look like for you to step into your power? What does it feel like? How do you cultivate that? How do you rest in your power? Knowing that there's a world that is on fire and being reborn as you speak.
0: Mm-hmm. You said you wish someone had told you that when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel settled in that now? Do you do you do you typically wake up and go to bed like Man, I'm powerful as shit, or <laughs> or do you find like me? There are moments in Mm -hmm. any given day. There are periods in any given week, month. There are seasons even in which I might feel less powerful and more powerful Mm -hmm. at other times. And for you,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm curious, what does that look like on you? Like, what does that feel like on you? How do you distinguish between the two for yourself?
2: I really like this question. For me, and this comes from my, in part from my Buddhist practice, for me, it's a moment-to-moment awareness. So any realization is not static. It's not ever-present. It's about calling it back into memory, into my memory, into your memory, calling it back into your memory in that moment when otherwise I would have gone into a blame spiral, right? So a situation happens and I can notice that my past response would have been to be incredibly self-critical, to say all kinds of, you know, my, my friend Mick, they call this mean, they call this mean brain <laughs> and it's the mean brain says all kinds of just, I would say painful, it's, it's more than painful things. I think it becomes your way of relating to yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm an idiot. I can't do anything right. I couldn't do this right. I don't, you know, I don't deserve to be here. And so in the past, those were very real responses because again, like I was never told, that I was valuable just as I am. I was never told that I'm powerful just as I am. So it's not that I feel powerful all the time or that that's even the goal, but how do I relate to myself in those moments where an external stimulus, if you will, or a comment someone makes or a thing that happens at work or an experience I have at the grocery store or when I go to pick up my food and the people think I'm stealing, you know, like I'm about to steal my own food. And just all this very real stuff that happens as you navigate the world in a body in place of those shameful and blameful fear-based and lack-based responses. How can I relate to myself in a way that is more affirming in a way that's more loving Mm -hmm. I have a question
1: in, in the coaching that you provide, in the facilitation that you offer, mm-hmm. in the framing you're bringing around emotional connection and awareness. How well does that go go over with the, the C-suite of like d- tried and true bureaucratic entities of, of agencies that you navigate, whether it be, and I don't mm-hmm. want to like... You know, dime out our clients, but whether it be some big federal agency or some big Department of Blank in I'm trying to think of a state where we don't have a client, uh, the state of Iowa and their Department of, of something, um, and you're talking with a deputy director or chief staff or somebody. How how do you make that connection from where you are to where they are? And I know I'm being a little stereotypical about like people like in terms of like, I just made up a state. It could be, could be Oregon. It could be, you know, where I am. So I'm not like anti-Iowa. I'm just trying to think (laughs) of a state where we we don't have a contract and where I'm not going to get in trouble. But do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, how do you make that connection? How do you help them see what you're trying to bring into this world or to to model or to manifest or to share?
2: In two ways. The first one is asking questions around belonging. When we do equity work, what I've noticed is that a lot of the focus for most people is on in the metrics are focused on increasing the number of Black, brown, and Indigenous people who will work for us. The increasing the number of black-brown-led organizations that we will partner with. And so in very real ways, when you actually want to bring those people in, or let's say when you want to partner with organizations, being able to name that Sometimes a lack of trust for instance is founded in fear and what i've noticed is this might be in part a generational shift and what i'm saying with that is mm-hmm. that it may not happen immediately and we have to be we have to accept that for what it is because And this ties into the second way, which is when I do coaching with my clients, when I'm not, like, I think the consultant, the role of the consultant has its limitations. Now, if I were to be brought in as a facilitator and asked to facilitate trust building, it would be a lot more straightforward to, to do the work of creating emotional consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's very much the center of coaching. And I'm actually, I'm saying this because I've been working with a vice president at the NI agency. She's just below, technically just quote unquote below the C-suite level. And we talk about this all the time. And so the second way is just to shatter the illusion that it's not already there, that it's not already the dominant undercurrent. And what is simply needs to happen is to consistently create a challenge and an invitation to structure our spaces and our conversations in ways that support that honesty And you can't have honesty without a sense of accountability, which transformative justice is, is centered around is often we're either under accountable. So we're, um, shaming the other person. If they say, Hey, you harmed me in this moment. If they have the courage to say that we'll shame them. And that's a form of under accountability or we're over accountable which also happens with a lot of well-meaning white folk doing quote-unquote anti-racist work, where they'll start blaming themselves. Be like, whoa, I'm such a bad person. And again, remember what I said earlier about you just took this back to you Mm -hmm. and that doesn't make the person feel seen. So I, having said all that, because I have shattered that illusion, I actually do this all the time. Before we even started recording this conversation, I asked you, When he said, it was my fault, I didn't turn that button on, he said, and how did you feel? And it doesn't matter how much you understand that that's an intentional question. It just matters that that's how I'm showing up and Mm -hmm. that's how people who work with me also practice their own ways of of, of showing up with that emotional consciousness.
1: I want to respect... The amount of time that you took with us both to listen to us talk, to share with us um, what you're trying to make um, manifest in this world through you and all who have informed you before and all who um, are informing you still. And I know you're a listener, so I know you know where I'm going with the question When you're in it, we're all human. We all get frustrated. We all write shitty limericks about our podcast co-host. We all mess up the other side of the bed of the partner just for spite. We all do various things like that in our
2: imperfections. What's your petty?
0: Go. Hurry up.
2: What's my petty? What's
1: your petty when you show up at your, like, sometimes, mm, you know, when, 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 when Michelle Obama says, when, yeah. when they go low, we go high. When they go
2: low, we you go low. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're like, yeah,
1: when I'm we sure. go lower, what does your lower look like? Cause I don't have a personal chef and Oprah's not my best friend. So I go low. I don't go high. <laughs> what is your low when you go low?
2: Okay. I, I, so, until recently, and if we had more time, I think there that there, there are beautiful connections to doing the work of affirming who we are fully is also a a trans offering to this world because we already do that as trans people. We have to or we wouldn't exist. And hmm. And we like doing it. It brings us joy, right? And so in those low moments, I would say that I have fluctuated between telling another person my feelings, like, I'm feeling this way, you know, And, and framing it in a way where I'm blaming them for what I'm feeling. Um, and I've had to rewrite those texts. Like I just be writing them out in the heat of the moment, <laughs> and then I just take a. Yeah, you know, I hope I recently taken a pause. But in the past, I'm sure that I have blamed people for my feelings, um, and I also have blamed myself. I think that is my that has been my lowest point when I was actively combating depression. Was that I would just chronically, literally you know, blame myself. And like, I think recently, and this is connected to the trans offering recently, since I've been on T, which is testosterone, I've noticed that I'm feeling more anger. Like I've been in situations where before I would have felt shame. Like I would have, you know, felt deflated or, um, like felt like something's prickling me like all over my body. I now feel angry and I feel like lashing out. And that's not, in, I don't know if that's entirely up to the hormone, but it's definitely changing my body and also my relationship to that, to that response. So that has been my petty recently. It's just being angry.
0: What does that look like?
2: Um, I like, <laughs> I like, I, my instinct is to isolate myself because I've seen people be angry, like unleash their anger on other people. And I think that's mm-hmm. almost always traumatic. Like it's hard to w- experience someone's anger and, and not have a residue of, of, um, trauma from that. But I just isolate myself. I would like jump on my bed, literally, like if you're asking for the very specific response I have, and I'll just vocalize it. I'll just say, what's making me angry? You know, this person's just like, isn't doing what I need them to. Or like, I thought we had that figured out. And it's not, And we don't got it figured out. And it's pissing me off because it's taking my time and energy and, you know, focus away from other things that We could be figuring out if we were just on the same page. And and I just vocalize that stuff to myself. Um, And then I try to, recently when I did that, I did try to look at it from the other person's perspective. Like, hey, you know, but that's the second response I have. And and I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Vocalize Mm it with yourself. So Mm -hmm. you're not dumping on people without their consent.
1: It's the human equivalent to the um what I call in Google, Oh shit, I didn't mean it, and that's the forty second delay on the send of mm-hmm. an email, right, and so you talked about the text of like you made me feel right, like the as opposed to like like blaming someone for making you feel something like we don't have the oh shit on the text that pauses us, and it feels mm-hmm. like
2: your oh shit, just wait is jump on the bed and just yell it. It's because we value speed and not wisdom in this culture, in this dominant culture. Mm-hmm. It's because we value speed over slowness.
0: hmm Yeah. hmm So, real quick, just to offer from me to you. Okay. If you ever want some tips on anger management, On how to throw a fit slowly where people don't notice. (laughs) I I got you. Yeah. If we ever are in the same place physically, I have over the years, I've mastered the ability to throw fits right in front of somebody and they don't actually realize what's going on until it's too late.
2: I really, I really do want to have that conversation with you.
0: I love talking to men
2: about feelings, it's one of my favorite
0: things. Mm -hmm.
1: Like, suddenly I'll look over and see. That my computer is on the floor. I hadn't noticed it. Yep. That my bag has got like chocolate milk spilled inside it. That I like pencils are broken. Mm -hmm. And I didn't notice any of it. Mm -hmm. And it was over a period Mm
0: -hmm. of
1: facilitating a meeting of a whole day. And I'm all, oh, that motherfucker just threw a petty fit Mm -hmm. over four hours. Over
0: four hours. Stretched this shit out. You understand? The yeah. other thing is I can send you a punching bag if you got a space to hang it. Because for me, my anger management has done, that punching bag in my basement has done wonders for me, straight up. Like it is, um, I have a colleague of mine, Muhammad, who's mm-hmm. been a guest on our show and he and I talk about anger and what it is to manage anger mm-hmm. as like, humans who are trying to be in right relationship with the rest of the world as humans who are both folks of color. And we understand that when we're angry, there's a very different perception of what that means. So managing that is a a whole thing for sure. Um, And yeah, happy to have that conversation at any point. Um, Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for doing the work.
2: Thank you for sharing this time with me. Thank you for sharing this
0: time with me. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And thanks for being a listener. I mean, to the pod, not just meaning. I was like, what? In life. (laughs) (laughs) No, a listener to to the pod. For being like a, oh my God, a supporter. Should I have said that instead? I mean, you
0: can say whatever feels natural. It was just weird.
1: Drive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting.
0: The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences and value relationships, thus making change possible.
1: Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives and wisdom of those who stand to benefit.
0: For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org.
1: For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com.
0: Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas-Jackson. Doug Fierentine is our audio engineer. Susanna McCannalis is our administrative support. Jenny Cotting and Soraya Yamada-Sapien help us out with marketing and promotions. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.